Hello and welcome to this third episode of Heal Our Earth, the podcast about coming together to build our sustainable future. I'm your host, Mia Dillon, and I'm excited to talk about our topics for today. We're going to dive a little bit into some frameworks for thinking about and exploring environmental issues that we may come across in the news or in our day-to-day lives. So let's get started. I want to start this episode by discussing two frameworks for understanding that I think are really useful um, to one, feel like we can really comprehend the environmental and climate change issues that we are dealing with, and two, to meaningfully address them. The first of these frameworks is the idea of environmental health. Uh, My concentration for my public policy major in undergrad was actually environmental health. So this idea informs a lot of my approaches to policy and the topics that I'm going to cover in this podcast. The basic idea of environmental health is simple. The environment impacts human health. Environmental public health efforts go back for decades and centuries. A great example of this in the U.S. is the sanitation movement of the 1800s, which led to a huge reduction in mortality from infectious diseases and increases in life expectancy. Environmental health and policy is preventative in nature. This connects to a lot of rising movements that we've seen these past couple of decades surrounding health and healthcare moving from illness-based to wellness-based. And what that means is rather than waiting until we're sick and then making changes with the goal of no longer being sick, we proactively make changes with the goal of being well. We can apply this same perspective to the environment. So we want to create an environment that is healthy for us as humans. And this means that we want to look at the root causes of environmental conditions that are bad for our health. Right now, we have a lot of challenges to environmental health across the globe. We have polluted and sometimes overcrowded cities. We have unsustainable waste generation. We have emissions of greenhouse gases and pollutants, dangers to our drinking water, and with climate change, weather extremes and their consequences. When we think about how these conditions affect our health, we want to think about both the root cause and the proximate cause. Approximate cause means the cause that is most direct to the consequence, but not necessarily the source of the problem. So if someone gets sick after drinking contaminated water, the root cause would be how the river got polluted, and the proximate cause would be the exposure, so how or why that person drank polluted water. Um, A more specific example would be, we know that mercury exposure during pregnancy can cause problems for a baby's development. The proximate cause in this case, the cause most nearest to those negative developmental effects, would be the mother eating mercury-contaminated fish. However, the root cause, the actual source of the problem, would be corporations polluting the water with mercury. So when we think about avoiding health consequences from negative environmental conditions, we want to think about avoiding the exposure to pollution, but more importantly, we want to think about dismantling the root cause of that pollution. So so environmental health means that what we do to the environment has consequences for us. And here's where the problem lies. Those who are paying up for those consequences are often not the ones causing the problems in the first place. 
That, in one sentence, is the framework of environmental justice. The environmental justice framework asks, are those facing the consequences of pollution the ones causing the pollution? How are people being disproportionately impacted by the adverse health effects of pollution or of climate change? And when we say disproportionate, that means we think about how much pollution is one person producing? And then how much, how much is that person impacted by climate change or pollution in turn? And basically we wanna know, are the people that are the worst off because of pollution, because of climate change, because of any of these negative environmental conditions that we've talked about, um, are the people that are being hurt by these conditions the ones that are causing the conditions? So are the people that are profiting from pollution the ones whose homes are being washed away when sea levels rise? And the answer is no. Um, so the concept of environmental justice is relatively new, developing over the last two decades or so. We can trace the origin of the environmental justice framework to North Carolina, where protesters used the words environmental racism on signs while protesting against landfills that were predominantly that were located in predominantly black neighborhoods. It's not a coincidence that the environmental justice movement was born in the South. I was born and raised in South Carolina, and in the South, we have a history of giving structural support to inequality. Think about Jim Crow laws, which made it difficult for Black people to vote, even though they were supposed to have the right to vote. Think about segregation laws. Um, and it's not just history, it's not just a history and a present reality of racism that means the South needs environmental justice. It's also about poverty. In the South, on a state level, the locations of to toxic waste discharge and industrial pollution are correlated with poor economic conditions. So what that means is toxic waste discharge and the location of industrial pollution, these things are more likely to be, they are more likely to be fixed in place where there are poor economic conditions, where there's poverty. The EPA defined environmental justice in 1998 as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulation, and policies. Um, through this definition, fair treatment means that no group of people, including racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic groups, should bear a disproportionate share of the negative environmental consequences resulting from industrial, municipal, and commercial operations, or the execution of federal, state, local, and tribal programs and policies. That is a dense definition. So let's break this down a little bit. Um, with some specifics, some examples, let's talk about this. The environmental justice framework can be applied at every scale. Um, let's first look at the scale of a community. So in the scale of the community, um, to figure out what environmental justice or environmental injustice looks like, first we want to know what are the pollution sources in a city. One example that's pretty straightforward is to look at highways. People who live next to highways experience more pollution. I mean, that's pretty sensible, right? There's more car exhaust to breathe in on a daily basis. That's more pollution exposure. So the environmental justice framework asks who is living next to the highways. 
Is there a part of the population that is disproportionately represented? So let me give you a simple hypothetical. If there is a town that has a population of 100 people and 20% of the people in a town have brown hair, but 80% of the people living next to the highway have brown hair rather than 20%, that means that that is a disproportionate amount of people with brown hair living next to the highway. Disproportionate. It's not the same percentage that makes up the actual population. So in real life, when we talk about the highway example, people of color and specifically black people live next to highways disproportionately to the percentage of the population they make up. And that looks like environmental injustice. So let's dig deeper as to the reason why that happens. Um, it's not random, it's not a matter of preference. Our highway system has been around for so long that it feels like it's just always been there. But that's not true. When the first highway, when the highway system was first being constructed back in the 50s, the government had to decide where to route the highways. In cities and towns, they had to take that land that was already in use for something and turn it into a roadway. So would you want to move next to the highway today if it was an option? I'm guessing that, I know I wouldn't. And people back in the 1950s didn't want to either. But the political ability to resist that change was much stronger in white communities compared to black communities. Because black people had less of a political voice, they were comparatively unable to put up that resistance that white people were able to. And I mean, I say white people and black people, and we're thinking about, I mean, the community that this represents, right? Like it doesn't mean that in a- Now let's talk about the global scale. We tend to divide the world broadly into developing richer countries and developed poorer countries. Most of these developed countries occupy the Northern Hemisphere, the colder zones, while most of the developing countries occupy the Southern Hemisphere, the warmer zones. This global distribution has a direct consequence when we talk about environmental justice in regards to climate change, and here's why. These developed countries of primarily the Northern Hemisphere are historically by far the largest contributors to global pollution and the burning of fossil fuels. The history of pollution extends much, much further in countries like the United States in the countries of Europe, where we've been burning coal and other fossil fuels since the 1800s when the Industrial Revolution first kicked off. But it's not just about how long the pollution has been going on. Um, it's also about the waste compared to population size. I mean, the United States occupies a huge landmass and has a... But the United States is also responsible for a disproportionately large amount of greenhouse gas emissions compared to its population size. So the problem is that the developed countries of the Northern Hemisphere are the primary contributors to climate change. But where will the impacts of climate change be most felt? And that's in the Southern Hemisphere in the developing countries. Closer to the equator, if emissions do not decrease significantly, then at the current rate at which temperatures are projected to rise, um, it will not be possible to work outside a growing portion of days in the year without the real probability of heat death. And depending on our trajectory, if things keep going the way they're going, it'll be less than 30 years. And if we decrease it a little bit, it'll be 50. It's not something that is outside of the realm of possibility. It's a very real probability. Rising sea levels that are also caused by our rising temperature levels will decimate island countries like Indonesia and the nations of the Caribbean. 
Due to climate change, natural disasters will increase in intensity and frequency for decades. And the developing countries of the Southern Hemisphere will pay the greatest price caused by pollution that they are not the primary emitters of. There are a lot of double standards when rich developed countries talk about the emissions and environmental issues of poor developing countries. First, we have an unjust distribution of waste globally. Rich countries will pay to ship their pollutants and waste to poorer countries or send risky technologies to places with weaker regulations and infrastructure. The United States is a huge exporter of its waste. We're producing it at this crazy fast rate and then we're just trying to get rid of it. And in previous decades, maybe that worked, but we live in a global society. We are all dealing with these problems. So we can't simply just produce our waste and put it out of sight, out of mind. It's not gonna work anymore. Um, this unequal distribution of waste compared with the distribution of benefits is something that we see a lot at the scale of the private sector, of corporations. Um, one really good example of this are maquiladoras, which are companies found primarily in Latin America that allow factories to be largely duty-free and tariff-free. So they're really advantageous financially to um, a lot of American corporations and other corporations as well, but we're focusing on the U.S. right now. Um, the problem with this is that the pollution being produced, let's say in a factory in Mexico, the impact of that pollution, the, the adverse health effects, the impact to the land, to the natural resources, all of that will be felt by Mexico, by the people of Mexico and the land of Mexico. But all of that benefit is going primarily to the United States. There was an agreement in 1983 called La Paz Agreement, um, signed by Mexico and the United States, that required hazardous waste created by the United States corporations to be transported back to the United States for disposal. However, as of 2007, the EPA reports that only 91 of the 600 maquiladoras located along the Texas-Mexico border have returned hazardous waste to the United States since 1987. So in almost 20 years, that's a huge discrepancy. We also see this trend of getting rid of harmful waste um, within the U.S. So Native American nations are also often involved in waste trading, um, being paid to take on pollutants and other waste uh, from the U.S. government, just as other developing nations are. Throughout the U.S., Native American nations contend with some of the worst pollution. There's this term, radioactive colonialism, which is used to describe the mining of uranium and waste disposal on indigenous reservation lands. So to summarize what we've talked about so far, first, the basic idea of environmental health is that the environment impacts human health, and therefore what we do to the environment has consequences for us. And then the problem that comes of that is the issue of environmental justice. This is a framework that asks, are those who are paying the consequence those who are causing the problem? And if the answer to that question of, are those who are causing the problem the ones paying for the problem, if that answer is no, then we have environmental injustice. And unfortunately, at both a community scale 
and a global scale, the reality of the situation is often environmental injustice. And so that means that our task is to not only solve climate change, it's not only to stop the forward progression of climate change, but it's asking ourselves, how can we do this in an equitable way? How can we do this so that those who are relatively innocent are not the ones who are suffering the most? When we think about the environmental issues that we face today, it gets overwhelming very quickly. There's a huge diversity in terms of the kinds of issues that we're facing. And there's the sense of urgency of we're running out of time, things are getting worse. And when we think about all of these impacts, like we've been discussing today, it just feels like any action is better than no action, right? And it's not that I necessarily disagree with that, but I think that when we're thinking big picture and when we're thinking from a position of privilege, like I know that I'm thinking about environmental issues from a position of privilege where I'm not somebody that I don't believe I've been deeply hurt by pollution. I don't think that I've experienced what it's like to live in, in, in a situation that's environmentally unjust. So I think that when you're someone like me and you're thinking about environmental issues, when you're thinking from that place of privilege, it's easy to just think about getting something accomplished, getting that solution done. But it's about more than just getting something done. When we think about our, the issues that we face, we need to be transformative in how we think about our solutions. And I think that's because the root of these issues is so far in our past. We're seeing right now the culmination of decisions that have been made around the world for centuries. And undoing the effect of those decisions is going to be complex. But when we think critically about power structures, when we think critically about root causes, and most especially when we think about justice, I believe that when we think about these things, when we build our solutions, we can't help but make them transformative. We can't help but build something that's better than what we have right now. The framework of environmental health helps us to think preventative solutions rather than reactive solutions. It helps us to think about the root cause rather than just the thing that's easiest for us to see. And when we think about environmental justice, we can become aware of problems on a wider scale and we can see beyond simply how something impacts us to how it impacts other people. And I think that that ability to look just beyond how we as individuals are impacted by something and thinking about that bigger picture, that's part of that mindset of oneness that we need in order to overcome everything that we're dealing with now. Environmental health and environmental justice are tools that we can use to look honestly and holistically at what we want to change. If our goal here is to figure out how to collaboratively build a sustainable future, then we need to realize what we want to leave behind, what we choose to leave behind. Because when we build, we don't want the same problems that underlie and plague our current systems to just take on a new form. I believe that with these tools, 
and with the mindsets of reciprocity, of thinking about ourselves as one giant human ecosystem, then we have what we need to really look around us and figure out how to start. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of this third installation of Heal Our Earth. I hope that I presented some interesting ideas for you today or something that maybe will make you look at the world a little differently, something new to consider. Please reach out with any comments you have, questions, um, any news stories you've read that you think might be related to what I've talked about today. Next week, Dr. Jolanda McDonald from Vanderbilt University will be joining us. Dr. McDonald is an amazing scholar, an amazing person, and a great mentor of mine, and I'm really excited to share our dialogue with you guys next week. I hope you'll tune in, and until then, stay hopeful.